I'm Carl Thompson. I'm Wendy Liu. And I'm Jason Prado. And you're listening to General Intellect Unit. And uh, this week we have guests, and uh, for the first time ever we have uh, four people on a call, which is, uh, is going to be exciting. Um, so yeah, we're, I think we're, we're in general we're going to talk about tech and work, workers' organization and um, open source and all sorts of cool stuff. Um, so to kick us off, I mean, um, uh, I'll start with the, the, the by now uh, standard um, questions that we ask guests of, uh, for, for both Wendy and Jason. Um, who are you, what are you doing here, and why are these things happening? Hi, so yeah, I'm Jason Prado. Uh, I'm a software engineer in the tech industry. I've been working as a full-time software engineer for the past decade or so. Um, and over the past few years, I've become a volunteer with the Tech Workers Coalition, um, which is an organization you've talked about before on this podcast. Uh, we are working to build worker power in the tech industry. Uh, and I'm Wendy Liu. So I used to work in the tech industry. Now I'm, I've kind of transitioned into writing, currently writing a book called um, Abolish Silicon Valley, <laughs> which we can talk more about. <laughs> yep. It's not it's not as controversial as it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good I've, title. Um, it's a great title, yeah. I've seen I've seen people be really, really mad about the title, which is a mark of um, outstanding success, I think. Yeah, I mean, gotta sell copies, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's it's going to be it's going to be controversial. It's going to be hot stuff when it drops. Um, yeah, so I guess uh, like you mentioned, the tech workers coalition and um, like tech worker organizing stuff in general. I mean, you've you've both been sort of involved in that um, in recent recent times. Can um, so like uh, Jason, can you speak to your experience in uh, tech workers coalition recently? Uh, sure. So I got involved with Tech Workers Coalition about two years ago, uh, basically right after the 2016 election in, uh, in America. Uh, and I live in California where, uh, where I really got started and it's uh, had the most active chapters so far. Um, so I got started um, in a, working on labor campaigns on my tech campus. Like I work at one of the big tech companies. Um, we employ thousands upon thousands of contractors and vendors to do various services on our campus. And, um, you know, the, the people who fill these roles that serve food, that um, secure our campus, that drive cars, um, don't really have access to the, the benefits of, um, that you associate with tech workers, right? Um, and there has been a sweep of unionization happening uh, in these industries uh, in the Bay Area. So um, as a full-time employee of a tech company, I got involved through Tech Workers Coalition, uh, trying to build support for these union efforts. and. Um, and supporting workers in, in various like contract negotiations and union votes on campus. Um, so that's where I got started with TWC, um, and it's been kind of my main focus uh, as this this movement has grown. Yeah. Also, uh, also TWC has been in the news a little bit more lately um, for its role in uh, efforts like the Google Maven organizing project and uh, the Google Walkout, and organizing at Google around uh, Project Dragonfly, which is a project that would enable Google to launch in China um, with its search engine, um, but it would be censored uh, as specified by the Chinese government. And um, TWC has become an outspoken critic of several of these efforts and has also um, uh, lent their support to the Google walkout, which was massively successful. You know, over 20,000 Google employees walked out um, uh, at the same time, um, and that, of course, hit the news. And I only found about about TWC earlier this year. Um, actually, it was an article that you guys discussed in your podcast before, um, which Jason actually wrote, called Prospects for Organizing the Tech Industry. Uh, and I commissioned Jason to write that for Notes from Below. And I think before that, I didn't really know much about Tech Workers Coalition or what the prospects were for the tech industry. Um, my time in working in tech was very 
very uninspiring, I guess. Uh, and at the time, <laughs> I, I had I didn't know anyone who was interested in the sort of things that Tech Workers Coalition is talking about today. I did not know that was a possibility, and so um, finding out that there is this group of people in the tech industry who have radical politics and who are trying to actually make the world a better place was just super inspiring. And it, and it's it's been amazing to see what they've done over the last few months, especially. Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly has been uh, inspiring for us as well, <laughs> oh, yeah. sort of watching from the outside uh, the developments. Um, yeah, especially with the walkout, that was that was really impressive um, and uh, touching on a lot of different issues, I think uh, that's quite inspiring as well. And um, yeah, just showing that political strategy in tech is possible. And I think we're, we're probably going to get into this a little bit more later in the conversation. But, you know, um, to the extent of my involvement in the tech industry um, over the last, say, 10, 15 years, I haven't been a worker, but I've been kind of tangentially involved, involved in open source projects, that kind of thing. Um, there really was this this focus on engineering uh, away problems or um, focusing on purely sort of legalistic solutions. Um, and I never really felt very strongly or inspired by those kinds of efforts. Uh, and I always kind of felt like, oh, what we really need is more organizing. And seeing this happen has been just tremendous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, see, it seems um, like I'm a sort of an external observer, really. Um, not, not directly involved, but it, it does seem that, like... Um, there seems to be momentum there. Like it's going from um, early efforts to organize, um, I guess, the sort of non-technical staff. But now that the, the technical staff are like becoming more daring and actually like openly objecting and openly like rebelling to um, the projects like Maven and so on. Is, is that a fair read? Um, does it reflect your sort of experience? Um, yeah, definitely. The way that people are talking about these issues and, and trying to challenge them is, has changed. Uh, I think it, for most workers in the tech industry, there's a strong belief that the system works, right? That our leaders are um, the right people to be in charge, um, that uh, the system that has been so good to us and, and, and helped tech workers get ahead so much must be like fair and, and something you should trust. Um, so I think it's um, not a surprise that the, the same time that that's proving to be not so true for so many different kinds of workers in tech is around the same time that uh, our trust in that system is eroding and therefore um, our trust that, that these companies are coming out with the best solutions or they're doing the right thing when it comes to working with the military or compromising with a foreign government um, or, you know, handing uh, executives who do who commit sexual harassment $90 million payouts. Um, all these things are kind of colliding at the same time and the, the traditional solutions or the, the trust that um, our leaders will will treat us fairly. It's just kind of gone all at the same time. Yeah, and just to add to that, it, it does feel like there's this confluence of different factors. You have um, the whole like political realm just changing, especially in the last two years with Trump getting elected. And a lot of people working in the tech industry, you know, they didn't really expect that. They didn't really think it's going to happen. And just kind of seeing this happen and seeing the role that some of these tech companies have played in it, um, I think that's like awakened a lot of people to realizing that maybe what they do in the workplace does have larger political impacts. Uh, and that yes. if they, they want to change that, they can't just, you know, um, just go to the ballot box and like tick, tick a box. And maybe there are other things they can do. Maybe politics is about more than just elections. Um, and that there's like there's actually value in treating other aspects of your life in a political lens and seeing what they can accomplish. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. there's definitely been a, a, a sort of a shattering of the illusion of the, the sort of the, the eternal present where nothing really actually matters in the political sphere. Um, a lot of a lot of folk kind of waking up to the, the fact that that's not the case. And um, yeah, I mean, that definitely gels with my sort of experience in, in tech as well. Like this, um, as Kyle said, like this attitude of like engineering away problems or just sort of trusting that the system works. Um, that's kind of why we started the show, because that like is a plainly ridiculous sort of position, right? Like, um, and it's good to see that... Um, I guess what I'm coming back to is that it is really heartening to see these kind of movements um, and these these actions within the sort of heart of the the sort of technical apparatus. Like when when Google engineers are are doing a walkout for these reasons, it's um, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, I guess the the other thing we have to remember is that there's still a really long way to go. And with the Google walkout, even though so many people walked out, you know, they, they didn't all walk out because they wanted to unionize, right? Um, yeah. Some of them walked out just because of peer pressure or because, you know, they they thought sexual harassment was bad, but they didn't necessarily want to challenge some of the larger problems. Um, you know, maybe this one this one example of sexual harassment was bad, but they don't see a problem with the hierarchy in general. And I guess the kind of what we need in the tech industry is this like greater political awakening where people start to challenge um, more than just, you know, the the most egregious examples of, you know, tech kind of uh, like the problems within tech and instead realizing that all these systems that they see as natural should be open to question. Um, and it's pretty funny because there's this whole ethos of disruption in the tech industry, you know, constantly disrupting, reinventing things. But it feels like there's an inability to disrupt or reinvent or reimagine so many of these things that they, t- they take for granted, like how the tech industry works, um, how entrepreneurship works, how uh, the whole concept of meritocracy and, you know, who deserves power, who deserves to get promoted, who deserves control over what they build. Um, and it feels like people are starting to question it, but at the same time, it's such a long way to go before that actually makes a difference. Yeah, this movement is, is growing, but it's certainly very early still. Uh, and something I've learned going through this movement is that uh, the media is very hungry for news about what is happening inside these companies and wants wants to support a narrative that there is either a backlash or or something growing inside the tech industry. And, and while that's true to a degree, um, somehow the media just pays attention to anything involving tech workers. I think uh, these large tech platforms are just so um, not transparent that uh, any news coming out from them is, is mm. kind of, well, it's blown up a lot, which is we can definitely use to our advantage, but also we need to maintain a realistic vision of, of how far along we are. Right. So in that sense, do you think like the culture of the NDA um, and the the culture of secrecy in tech has kind of blown up uh, in the tech companies' faces to some extent <laughs> because it's created more journalistic interest in in uh, in the sector than might otherwise exist. I, I think so, but at the same time, these tech companies are just masters of PR. They have massive PR teams that are, are very effective, um, both internal and external PR, actually. But also, the culture, the culture of secrecy is still very much alive inside these companies, right? There have been all these leaks coming from Google, but um, the rank and file of Google still hate leakers. There's still like a strong cultural um, uh, taboo of leaking within Google um, that's very much enforced by the leadership. It very much serves the company and, and the shareholders. Um, it's pretty clear it doesn't really serve the workers and definitely doesn't really serve users and, and the citizens of the world. Yeah, just to, just to share a kind of funny story about leaking. Um, when I was interning at Google, 
there was someone who got fired for leaking. Um, and that was presented at the the weekly, like, town hall-style meeting at TGIF, where Larry and Sergey just kind of got on stage and were like, yeah, there's this guy who, like, leaked something. And it wasn't even a really big deal. It was just um, some details about this new product about to launch, and it wasn't controversial in it by any means. But then they're like, yeah, we found out this guy was leaking, so, you know, he's been he's been terminated. And then I think that was Sergey saying he was terminated, and then Larry is like, Oh no no we mean fired and then everybody kind of laughs as if it's like this oh yeah this guy just like lost his job for doing something really innocuous and yeah great like we're we're all so happy that we've like protected our our company secrets um, and it's yeah it's it's so it's not just the NDA it's definitely just like the whole cultural aspect of this company is your family how dare you betray it if you're leaking you're just you know you're betraying everybody's trust in you um, mm-hmm. and then that instills this kind of subservience to what the what your manager says, what management is saying, and that, you know, you feel like you don't really have agency as an individual and that if you were to try to challenge things, then you're just, you're stepping on a line and that you don't have the right to um, either leak or like ex- express your opinion or push back against people. And that's a really difficult um, kind of culture to, to organize within, right? You have seen that kind of blow up at Google. Um where they, the Google organizers have published open letters uh, about sexual harassment about Maven, um, and most recently, a group of contractors publishing an open letter about their working conditions. Um, so that is a big change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's good. Um, so we've, we've been sort of circling around this um, idea of, like, um, both in this conversation on the show, of, like, going beyond these sort of, like, um, individual, like, molecular level objections and sort of building up to a more um, general transformation of uh, the sort of technical infrastructure and uh, and logic of the society. And one of the sort of um, things that stands out in that sort of thing is uh, the, the Lucas plan, which we've talked about a couple of times on the show, and I, I know you uh, you have quite a bit of interest in. Um, so, yeah, Wendy, could you, could you speak to that a little bit? Sure, yeah. I think, um, so, the, the article that I'd re- recommend here is the Notes from Below article on the Lucas Plan called uh, Bringing Back the Lucas Plan. And the whole idea is um, taking this plan from, I think, the like 1970s or 1980s uh, in Lucas Aerospace, which is a company that was manufacturing a um, bunch of different products for defense and uh, other things. And at the time, they were... They were shutting down, and they were going to sh- they were going to close down these factories. But the workers at these factories were saying, um, actually, no, like we don't want to shut down these factories. We think that our knowledge and um, you know the the plants that we have they're useful. We should it, the thing is instead of using them just to manufacture arms, we could repurpose them to manufacture more socially useful products. So you know, say like solar panels or um, vehicles for public transit, or really just anything that the community needed as opposed to whatever the the military wanted them to build. And they drew up this plan, and they actually had the support of um, Tony Benn, uh, the Labor Party at the time. And they they actually, like, created this really radically different and imagined a plan where the workers, who are the ones on the ground floor building the products, you know, whose, whose labor is the source of all value, they would be the ones who decide what gets built, and they would decide it in conjunction with what uh, the community needed. So... And that is something where, I mean, if you if you look at how the tech industry works now, that those, those two visions are just so completely opposed. Because what we have now is that um, for most of these, especially the big tech companies, workers don't really have any input on what gets built. It's very much a top-down directive. Um, you know, management decides that they want to uh, create this new product or they want to scrap a product, and the workers who are building it don't have really any say. And I think one uh, one way this impacts um, a lot of people in tech in like 
very visceral, visceral ways when the product that they want, that they that they enjoy using, gets cut by the company. They really don't have any say. The workers don't even have any say. I was at um, Google when all this controversy around Google Reader was happening, and you know Google Reader is being shut down, and a lot of people who were you know software engineers at Google, they loved Google Reader. And they were like, why is, this co- why is this being shut down? And the people working on it were also like, yeah, we don't want this to be shut down. But then it was kind of a decision by management, you know, just like looking at their bottom line, looking at what they wanted to support. And they were like, yeah, we're shutting this down. And there was just no real way to protest that. And I mean, that's just like one tiny example. Something, something like Project Maven is a much bigger example with much larger geopolitical implications, where should these tech companies be um, essentially arms of the U.S. military, agents of U.S. Uh, U.S. imperialism. I mean, that's something that right now is being decided by a few executives who are, you know, spending a lot of time talking to uh, people in the U.S. government. Is that the way things should be? Not necessarily, but it's the way we're used to. It's just that this kind of like authoritarian structure that we've been so completely accustomed to because it's just how corporations work. It's how capitalism works. But that's something that is, I think, at the moment, open to contestation, especially as um, workers become, you know, more and more aware that they want to be working on something, you know, socially useful. They want to be doing something ethical with their time. And that maybe the structures of the companies that they work in, as they exist now, aren't necessarily going to allow that. And to date, companies have been able to have it both ways, where companies tell their employees and when they're recruiting employees, they tell them, you know, come work here to work on this almost humanitarian mission, right, um, of improving the world and giving the world this technology. Um, but at the same time, the, the you know, management of the company gets to set exactly the metrics you optimize for, which always are revenue, growth, engagement, whatever, whatever becomes ultimately a proxy for shareholder value. Um, and I think that cracks are starting to show in that, that, you know, tech workers get into this field um, and, and work long hours, study outside of work, um, like contribute to open source outside of work because they believe in this vision that uh, humanity is entitled to these these technological products that make our lives better and uh, add so much value to our lives. Um, then you go into the workplace and you're sold that line, but you also you know, might end up, uh, you know, optimizing ad revenue on this one corner of a, of a platform or something. And those two things don't really align. It takes a lot of energy on the part of the company to, to keep people, like, holding these two contradictory ideas in their heads. Um, and the more these, uh, these platforms engage in projects like Maven uh, that are just obviously not for the benefit of humanity, um, the, the more the cracks are trying to show. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I, I think that's absolutely right that the, this this contradiction is is really coming to the fore, um, and it's very interesting because especially when you consider a project like Maven or Dragonfly, Silicon Valley really comes out of a military background uh, in its inception, um, and there has been an interesting degree of distance established between these large tech companies and the defense sector or just, you know, what you might call the arms manufacturers um, and in the Pentagon. Uh, It's not to say connections don't exist. They certainly do. But they're very much not conceptualized or thought of ideologically in the same way that something like Boeing is, right? Um, It's it's a rather different relationship. You don't have um, tech companies advertising uh, on you know the the ads before the PBS NewsHour uh, celebrating their connection to the military industrial complex, right? Um, it's it's a very different mode of presentation, um, and so it seems to me that we're at a fairly important juncture here 
where it could really go either way. Um, these companies could double down on that relationship mm-hmm. and just say, no, this is what we're about, right? Um, what's what's good for Google is good for America, and you know what's good for America is imperialism. Um, or it could go a different way, uh, and that would be a direction of more sort of worker revolt and uh, and and change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think one way of seeing it is that these companies are growing up in a sense. And you know, when these f- companies first came out, and they they really they really like seem to believe that they were making the world a better place. And people who work there also seem to believe it. Um, mm. And that worked for a while, but then as they grew up, they had to start making these choices, and that comes partly due to financial pressures as they go public, uh, as as they become more beholden to, um, they become big enough to the point where they have to figure out how to negotiate with governments, and especially the U.S. government. And so they've all kind of grown up to the point where they've become embedded in you know the U.S. military industrial complex, but also have to make decisions based on what their their shareholders want, and you know that partly explains the whole rise in contractors this whole like two-tier employment system for mostly financial and like liability-based reasons. But it, what it means is that they're getting to the point where the people who work in these companies and the people who formerly maybe would have championed them and glorified them and really believed in them, they have to come to terms with what these companies are now because maybe there's a time when things could have gone differently, but it's clear that it, you know there's something structural about the, the system that these companies have have been um, embedded within that is forcing them to come out the, the way they are now. And then I guess the big question now is how do we actually change that? Um, and I don't know, I guess I, do, I just don't see a way of changing that without really reforming the structure and like looking at, you know, the kind of like institutionals and the institutions that created what, um, what we see today, but also like what are the possibilities for count- countervailing power? And the whole tech worker thing, I mean, that angle just seems really exciting to me because it hasn't really been explored and we're just still in like such beginning stages. And it's kind of hard to see how, you know, a few tech workers rebelling against management could actually like change the shape of the United States, like tech, military, industrial complex, whatever. But still, we don't know. Um, And if this grows, uh, if it gets to the point where it's actually, um, you know, self-sustaining and like if it reaches a critical mass, then it could really, really change the landscape. Because after all, these companies can't operate without these workers. Certainly. You know, it's easy to forget that. It's easy to, to forget. But no, these employees are like, if they all stop going to work, the, the company just doesn't really exist anymore. And so, I mean, that that is something to keep in mind. Uh, yeah, we're, if, if anyone listening to this is like working at a big tech, tech company, you are important. <laughs> yes. You have a lot of power if you find Absolutely. others who believe what you do. Yeah, that, um, that reminds me a lot of the stuff we covered in our series on Andrew Feinberg's uh, Transforming Technology, right? Where, um, yeah, that like these, even if these companies start out as like being very idealistic about changing the world and all this humanitarian mission, like they're still embedded in a structure that has a sort of ambient logic to it. Um, and they end up conforming to that logic. And the, I suppose, yeah, the, to the, what seems to be the answer to that big question of like, how do we actually change the structure of this is you have to change the logic of it, um, change the, uh, what Feinberg calls the technical code that directs all sort of activities inside of its, um, sphere of influence. Um, yeah. And like this, these, the, these steps towards tech worker organizing are, are you know the beginnings of um of of workers exerting control over the technical code but to get to that point it needs to sort of go beyond um level of sort of individual grievance and of individual sort of like objections to individual projects it has to sort of build into a much bigger um 
industry spanning or even beyond the sort of industry, right? Like a sort of world spanning movement um, of, a, of refusal to obey this logic, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that the big challenge here is like making this, this really gigantic leap from individualizing problems to seeing them as collective problems. Because I think um, one really common approach for among tech workers is to, you know, experience problems in a workplace and be like, oh, okay, I guess I'll just work somewhere else. Right. And then if they have yes. that option, they'll they'll just quit. And it's it's actually a pretty common response to tech worker organizing. You have a lot of people who are like, why do these people bother doing a walkout? Why are they, you know, social justice activists? Why don't they just quit and work somewhere else? And that's something that's like it's not specific to tech. Like that's just kind of the political age that we're in. Um, you know, mm-hmm. this whole like neoliberal idea, you know, we're all entrepreneurs of the self. We all should be homo economicus and like maximizing things for ourselves. And that is such a huge um, ideological barrier to any sort of collection, collective action. Um, and I think that's something that is also very heavily entwined with the whole entrepreneurial um, mythos in tech, where, uh, you know, because because there are some people who have actually made it big, who have on their own and, or with a small team managed to um, just become fabulously rich in just a short amount of time. It feels like a lot of people in the tech industry could. It feels like it's an option for so many people. And so as a result, it's kind of hard to see yourself as a worker. Um, it's mm-hmm. so much easier to just be like, yeah, you know, I'm working on this for now, but eventually I'll just become super rich. So even if my, even if I don't like my workplace, this is just temporary. And then one day, you know, I'll be an entrepreneur and I'll have like total freedom. And so rather than, you know, collectively trying to, um, get some sort of control over your work now, you, you think of it as something that you should just bear for a few years and then eventually you'll have freedom on your own as an individual, even if it means leaving everybody else behind. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. But that is the kind of consciousness we're going to have to grow because these tech platforms are not going anywhere. anywhere. They're, they've, they're interwoven throughout our entire lives now. Um, they're massively powerful. Um, there's trillions of dollars of institutions backing up their power, um, and they're not going to they're not going to change their logic of their own accord, right? It's going to actually have to become come from below. There isn't really another alternative here. And you start to see like slight inklings of this. Um, one, the Google walkout organizers published their list of demands, and one of the demands was actually a worker representative on the board of directors, which is you know just the tiniest step towards trying to gain structural power for workers um, within mm-hmm. the tech industry. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And, um, you know, talking about the necessity of action from below, uh, it is also important to note the extent to which these large tech companies have become enormously uh, powerful lobbyists. Um, So if you think about state intervention in in these companies, it's probably not going to happen because they're buying so many politicians. Um, So like really at the point of production seems like a far more uh, useful place to intervene than, say, trying to make some kind of legal reform at this point, at least to me. That kind of depends where. This is the problem is in the U.S. for sure right now. Like, things are looking really bleak. You know, the two two main parties, uh, it's, it's really, it, there are very few people who are willing to challenge them. And some of the, the new um, incumbents, uh, sorry, like, some of the new challengers, like, you know, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right, like, that's mm-hmm. really promising. But at the same time, these people are so, so marginal. The establishment Democratic Party hates them. And the Republican Party, obviously, is not going to offer any sort of meaningful challenge. In the U.K., it's a little bit different just because 
because the Labour Party has said that they do want to uh, actually tackle the tech giants. Um, mm-hmm. the, the big problem with the Labour Party is that they're in opposition right now, and the, so many forces are weighted against them, and they're like there's a lot of internal opposition opposition to the leadership, which means mm-hmm. they have a lot like a long way to climb as well. But at the same time, I mean, there are the inklings of like discussion around policy in the EU. There are some cities actually that have embarked upon this whole like rebel city initiative, where um, Barcelona is probably the best example where they're doing their best to actually um, shut out tech companies and uh, instead of letting tech companies like privatize data in exchange for providing services they are uh, providing public alternatives or forcing these tech companies to disclose their data and so there are definitely opportunities to rebel on from like a political uh, policy angle at the same time you know, they're very limited and um, it's not entirely clear if any of this will pan out like especially if we see what happens like in the you know 2020 elections what's going to happen no one really knows at this point and um, dealing with tech companies is probably just like really far off um, that um that rebel city thing though is a pretty incredible turnaround from the um, sort of neo-feudal smart city stuff that was circulating and is still circulating like in the last last half decade or so um, the cities clamoring to hand over like surveillance of their streets and infrastructure to <laughs> to google or whatever in exchange for i don't know shiny bikes on corners or whatever yeah and it it has been quite promising uh to see the extent of opposition that amazon has faced in uh new york and new jersey um that's been uh, within america quite a quite a promising political turn um because it does feel like the blowback has been significant enough to at least warrant a discussion um yeah, I mean, it's definitely been heartening to see the the blowback from communities. Um, what's been really depressing is seeing, you know, elected officials like mm, yes. Cuomo being like, "I'm going to change my name to Amazon Cuomo." And it's just like really, really, this is almost like a, it's, it's almost like a dystopian like you know film that we're living in. It's just absolutely incredible. Yes. It's like something out of Robocop. Yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> yeah. 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 No joke. Yeah. <laughs> oh, grim. Um, yeah. Um, so I guess like one of the other sort of touch points we had was this um, uh, this interview with Richard Stallman that was published in the New Left Review, um, which is a pretty pretty interesting read, right? But um, uh, I think you'd expressed like quite a bit of frustration at like um, his sort of mix of like having some decent insights and also a sort of strange disavowal of politics. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot I really liked about that interview, and um, so what's interesting is because it's in the New Left Review, it's a you know publication that has like a very very like left political history, and um, most I would say most of the people who write in it are of like a, the left tradition. Whereas Richard Stallman comes in and he's not of that tradition. He's kind of like he doesn't really he's not like political in the same sense, and he comes from you know like a hacker free software background, and so. Him being interviewed by someone for that publication was a little bit frustrating to watch because you could tell the interviewer was trying to kind of get him to situate himself within the context that New Left Review readers would expect, like the political context, you know, about how, how it fits into capitalism, how does it fit into this, like, larger um, social structure. But then for Richard Stallman, his approach is definitely more individual. And I, I kind of see why it is, um, and I'm a huge, you know, a huge fan of what he's done so far with free software and I'm you know, a big free software supporter. But at the same time, I think what was missing is just like this link between um, what is free software? How does it work? How can it actually 
become more than just this like kind of refuge, this like isolated little microcosm? How can it be something that actually changes the underlying structure of how the world works? Because to me, um, the whole idea behind free software, it's not it's not the small thing, right? It's it's actually this like huge fundamental challenge to capitalism. If you think about how intellectual property has really underpinned so much of how the world works today, and in some ways it's like the next big frontier. Um, and Mackenzie Wark's book, um, A Hacker Manifesto, was like really eye-opening for me because it talks about mm. intellectual property as kind of like the latest, the latest stage of capitalism. Where let's say you know you had um, you had land, and then you, that was like the property that the the commons that was being enclosed, and that worked for a while, and then it produced this class of people who were essentially landlords who were making rent off of land, and then um, going forward forward a bit, you have industrial capitalism where you have people who own the means of, you know, industrial production, they own the factories, whatever, and they're collecting, they're making money through extracting value from that process. But then what we have today is the people who are making um, rent, a lot of them are are doing it in the, the in information terrain in a way, right? So it's digital and there are no physical there's no physical property to enclose, but they're still managing to enclose it and make a ton of money. And in a way, that feels really weird to us because, um, as consumers, if we think about how uh, digital rights management works, it it just like it feels unfair. Um, and I think that's why like there, there's definitely a lot of uh, a lot of crossover between people who like free software and people who just like don't like the idea of any sort of information being gated because they see they see that the reason it's being gated, the reason access to it is being controlled and um, commodified is solely for the benefit of corporations. It, it's solely so that a few very powerful monoliths can grow bigger. And um, the original free software movement definitely did have a critique of corporations, I think. And that's something that was really, really important, really heartening. And for me, I mean, that's something where even when I didn't even know what capitalism was, when no one had ever, like, taught me what the problem with corporations was, I was like, oh, this kind of makes sense. Yeah, like, I like being able to, you know, have music and have it for free. But, of course, the problem is that to get to the point where software can be free and really information can be free is such a huge leap that requires a fundamental restructuring of, you know, society, of the political systems, of how the economy works, and that's not really something you can you can do without looking at the political uh, political structures as well. So in the interview, there's kind of um, so I mean Richard Stallman does say that he supported Bernie and that he does support like left movements more generally, but at the same time, I I personally think that there needs to be stronger engagement with um, with like political movements. In the sense, of, you know, figuring out like uh, what political parties are actually able to implement the legislative changes needed to, you know, make the make the vision you're fighting for reality, and not just political parties, but also like what social movements, um, like tech worker organizing, is another avenue for this. And yeah, that's something that unfortunately wasn't really touched on in the interview. So yeah, I I, I think this is this is really the interesting point here. Uh, just to jump in, is that in that interview, it's a very long interview, like very extensive interview, and it gets a lot into Stallman's biography, right? His his life story and his political engagement, the context he was working in, and the reasons why he adopted the programs that he did. And I think that something that's very important, uh, or at least stood out to me, is that you know, he was coming out of this context of sort of political struggles at MIT um, and then the, the sort of broader co-option of the software industry uh, by people who were profit-seeking. And his responses that he came up with were either to engineer around the problem by creating something like GNU or 
resorting to sort of clever legal uh, tricks and then propagandizing a sort of ideology related to, you know, copyleft licenses, uh, especially uh, the GPL. Um, and you might sort of wonder why he didn't go to worker organizing in those situations, because there certainly was a similar kind of like, you know, management pushback and attempts to control the product of the worker that he was engaging with. Um, but I think what's really different between his time uh, when he was, he was first starting out and came to these, these formulations that he holds very strongly um, and the time that we're in now is that there's, there's so much less to support um, sort of class collaborationist ideology within the tech sector um, there, there, there is, it is more apparent the gap between the worker and capital uh, within tech than it was at the time that Stallman was starting out. And he talks about how he was trying to organize people and an effective way, at least in his view, for uh, him to do that was to set most politics aside and focus on software freedom. And that way he could work with right-wingers, like libertarians, he could work with centrists, he could work with leftists, um, they could all work together, they could all contribute something to the GNU project or to uh, copyleft license promotion. And that certainly had a, a degree of effectiveness, but I think we may have some better opportunities at this point to sort of put the class collaborationism aside and speak more honestly about opposition to capitalism. I think that like um, one of the problems that stood out to me in the the article, just kind of continuing that that thought, is that like uh, Stallman begins from the sort of position of wanting to guarantee collective freedom, but his his tactics are then all about guaranteeing individual freedom, like a molecular kind of oh the the only freedom that matters is that the individual subject has the ability to um, view the source of the or to alter the source of the program but it has to, like even when he gets into talking about big data and surveillance like it has to be apparent at that point that like those problems can only be dealt with at a level higher than the individual right like it's a frustrating mix of like libertarianism like staunch libertarianism with this kind of like He's like frustratingly close to getting it in so many places, and then swerves off in a very uh, individual individualistic direction instead, and kind of almost makes a point of not getting it to the, getting at the point. You know what I mean? Um, um, yeah, to use a, an analogy from programming, it's a type error, right? To think that an individual hacker could go up against um, a hundred thousand person company um, with billions of dollars behind it. Um, yeah, and what what it makes me think of is um, it it feels like in his head there's just divide between uh, what's political and what's within the realm of being dealt with by free software and like hackers. And that divide is itself like this very, you know, kind of arbitrary construct. And um, it feels like it, that's like a huge weakness in this project where if you think about what free software is capable of achieving, you need people who are able, who are free time, who are able to uh, read source code and able to contribute to it and able to work in a community. A lot of these things rely on um, this kind of like, you know, invisible infrastructure. You need, you need like an, an education system that's teaching people to code. You need uh, a way for people to like actually have time, have spare time to write code and not just, you know, be working uh, all the time. And so it's kind of like relying 
kind of relying on this um, infrastructure that's not thought about. In, in a way that reminds me of how, um, you know, social reproduction under capitalism is kind of like treated as this thing. It's like this fundamental under, underpinning layer that is just discarded and not treated as actually part of the structure. And that's a little bit like what um, the way, you know, Richard Spellman talks about politics, because he's like, oh, you know, we don't really need to worry about this as much. Like, I just want to focus on my movement, but the movement itself, like, if it's going to be successful, then it, it needs to consider, like, the larger aspects and the context that gives rise to it. Um, and actually, kind of going back to what you guys were saying earlier about uh, worker organizing, there's this quote in the interview that I just want to share because it's I, I thought it was really, really, really funny. Um, and it's his time at the MIT AI lab, and uh, the hackers are saying, we're not going to let the administrators tell us how to do things. We're going to work on what they need, but we will decide how. And we won't let them implement computer security to, res to restrict us. And I mean, that's such a classic case of workers self-organizing. Definitely reminds me of the Lucas plan, but also just like, you know, the whole like workers tradition. Um, and it's, it's such a pity that like this was kind of developed in a vacuum where, you know, the people who talked about this, I guess, didn't have a great understanding of labor history. Um, not through any fault of their own necessarily, but like, because if they had, then they could have uh, adopted the techniques that like workers have been using for for centuries. And the, you know, the the whole point of like having this history to draw on is that it makes us more effective and it gives us like the insights and the tactics that we need to actually succeed. Yeah, and when these and, ideas. Well, I just wanted to say that like it's very important to consider the context of that struggle, though. Um, like, if you look at Stallman's background, it's like, oh, I went to school, I wasn't doing super great, and then I fell into a job at Harvard, <laughs> and 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 then I and then I and then I went and I was like, oh, I was part timing at Harvard, and then I got a job at MIT, and it's like, oh yeah, like that's just the thing you do, um, like, and you know, it would be a similar situation for his colleagues that the the strategy of exit which we were talking about earlier, would be so easy to take if you were one of these pioneers of computing at MIT. Um, like, somebody's going to want to hire you. Uh, and and I feel like the situation we're in now is, is considerably more uh, restrictive and stressful and may, it may help to promote some collective action instead of just taking the strategy of exit. Yeah, when, when these ideas of the free software movement were being developed, basically... The, the tech landscape was that the Microsoft monopoly was on the horizon, but not yet you know, powerful. There had never been a piece of software that a billion people used in the world. There were no tech giants. The platforms had not really taken hold. Um, so in that, in that mode, like, yes, a, a genius hacker actually has a lot of power up against um, the institutions that they interact with. Um, today, the best engineer at Google or something is, is expendable, right, because they're just so mm. dominant. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess, yeah, it's... Um... It's frustrating, right? Because like um, Stallman's sort of ideas still have like a fair bit of purchase in um, amongst sort of technologists, right? But it's all—it's so kind of incoherent, right? Like it's this this old Californian ideology problem, right? Where it's a sort of mishmash of ideas that don't particularly add up to much of anything. I mean, he he has a line here where he says, and I'm quoting, that basically free software combines capitalist, socialist, and anarchist ideas, which is to say that it's an in incoherent mess, right? Like, <laughs> Um, but like, um, I kind of worry because like th this, um, this kind of individualism, this sort of, uh, libertarian sort of tr strategy of exit is, is still the kind of, um, main line for a lot of free and open source software stuff. Like, um, 
you still get the whole thing of like, oh, you know, if, if you don't like Chrome, you should just use Firefox. Like you should vote with your, your wallet as an individual consumer, essentially. Like it's all boiled down to individual choices. And it just, it has to be apparent that that's not working, <laughs> you know, at this point. So we need to move beyond these ideas, but like we're still kind of anchored to this stuff in a, in a very unsatisfying way, you know? And that's well, the logic it, that it, I think it, we have to change, right? The logic that we have to change is that um, rather than a choice of browsers, we're all entitled to a browser that doesn't spy on us. We're entitled to communication products that don't sell our data. Yeah, and I guess uh, realizing that the market as uh, and like consumer choice as the most effective mechanism for creating products maybe doesn't work when you have like a few small, uh, just like a small number of companies who are controlling how this works and and that and yeah I mean like if there ever was a time when the market and consumer choice worked for for optimizing and you know and innovation now is clearly not not the time. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean there's I've seen so much of this in like the Linux community. Um, that it's like, oh, you know, this thing didn't work out, it failed, like, oh, like, you know, Red Hat's getting bought out, oh, well, we'll just go and make a better Linux. And, and it, like, we're just going to engineer away the problem, and we're just going to exit from the problem. Um, and, like, that strategy mindset is so deeply ingrained, um, and, and it, it's just... It's not effective. No, it's just it's not isn't. effective. So, I mean, like, to anchor it, I, I suppose by the time this episode airs, this will maybe be old news, but, like, the big thing this week is that um, Microsoft are dropping their Edge uh, rendering engine and adopting Chromium, and everyone's flipping out because, like, oh, gosh, it's going to be a Chromium monoculture. And it's like, it already fucking is, guys. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, like, how, how, ooh, how didn't they realize, like, t today it's like, oh, gosh, oh, Firefox or Gecko or whatever only has, like, 6% market share. And it's like, yeah, that was true yesterday as well like it's you're, you're just realizing it now like i mean and in at the same time they're still sticking to this line of oh you know we should really exit from chrome and and use firefox instead as individual consumers it's like that hasn't been working it hasn't worked it's not going to continue to work you know um it has to be a and like a collective a societal sort of imposition on 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 technology right like it has to be it has to be a change in the technical code so that it actually like everything works differently instead of just like picking and choosing individual components that are maybe better or worse than others i don't know it's um it's frustrating that we're still stuck on that kind of angle even though it's like very visibly not working yeah i mean yeah, the thing with firefox specifically is that um i mean where does firefox where does mozilla get its revenue it's mostly firefox partnering with google right and so it's it's not like you boycotting chrome is going to do any damage to google <laughs> yeah i mean you know mozilla and firefox very much feels like those sort of like remnant right wing political parties that were kept around in state socialist countries, mm -hmm. right? That, that like, <laughs> like, yeah, you exist, right? Like, you know, it was like where Angela Merkel came from, right? That was that was the background she came from. It was a real party, but it 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 just existed to provide a kind of Potemkin edifice of 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 uh, non monopoly, right? And. And, like, in terms of the history of browsers, like, Google's capacity to use their access to capital, control of advertising, um, control of platforms uh, to sort of manage that transition away from Internet Explorer to Firefox and then to Chrome, um, like, I, I don't see in that history where technologists' personal opinions and consumer choices made any difference. Absolutely, yeah. 
yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have to we have to face up to that reality now. Like, um, yeah, um, it's because like our, our our present sort of way of thinking about this stuff isn't working, and it it it, it kind of can't work because like it, it, um, this the as as we said earlier in this conversation, like things have changed drastically. Like, I mean, the the context when Stalin was coming up was um, wildly different than it is now. Like, it's um it's just it's a bit silly to kind of latch, keep latching onto this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I think the best evidence that this this isn't working is that in one sense, open source is one, right? The most important software that we use, the most mm -hmm. important software that runs the internet is all open source. So like the internet must be democratized, right? Um, but it, it certainly doesn't seem to have uh, that we've actually democratized control over technology at all. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's in the interview, right? Where um, the interviewer points out that like Linux or GNU Linux and open source stuff has uh, dominated the web server um, market, but that, that ultimately serves businesses. Like, um, and then, you know, uh, Stallman counters with, well, well, when you visit a website, you don't really use it. You're, you know, the, the company is using the open source software to communicate with you. But it's like, God, God damn it, guy, you're so close to getting it. Like, come on, complete the thought, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that touches on the whole controversy around the AGPL versus the GPL, right? Like the, the Afero GPL. And um, I remember there was this huge debate over that in the open source community that I was part of um, like about a decade ago where we were thinking, should we switch to using the AGPL? Because we were building um, forum software. And that's something that would have definitely fallen under the purview of the AGPL, where, you know, if, if anyone accessed the forum, they should have access to the source code, even if they're not, like, using, you know, the actual source code itself. And so um, at the time, we decided not to go, go for it. But, I mean, the AGPL was specifically designed to try to um, accommodate the fact that software was no longer really being distributed, you know, on, like, CDs or anything. It was instead so much of it was available over the web, whereas the GPL had just, like, not really accounted for that. And I remember um, when I was at Google, the head of open source, uh, Chris DeBona, at the time he made, he sent out this, like, um, this message to everybody saying, we can't use any GPL, AGPL products. Because if we do, then we would theoretically have to release, like, potentially, like, a bunch of our code base. And, you know, of course, that was just something Google could clearly not do. Um, and I guess it, what, what's, uh, what the problem with that is, is, like, because so much software is run, um, is, like, accessed over the Internet, open source and, like, the whole idea behind the GPL, um, it just it can't really accommodate that. And, like, you kind of need everybody to switch to GPL, but they're not going to do that because it hurts, it hurts their business models. And so you, you have this, like, weird kind of impasse where... Um, there is no way to say, like, make you know any any website source code public. There's no way to like legally require that just using the tools of like free software that we have. And I think that the best example of that is when Microsoft bought GitHub a few months ago. And mm -hmm. you know, GitHub. The thing about GitHub is that GitHub only exists because of Git, which is this like, you know, this free software program. But GitHub itself isn't free. Why not? Oh, because it's it's accessed via web interface, and so it, the code doesn't have to be released um, freely. But the thing is, if it was, then you know it it maybe it wouldn't have bought for like been bought for several billion dollars. And I think that the fact that Microsoft was able to buy GitHub says a lot about um, the way capitalism works, the way the fact that you know free software and open source are not going to be enough to challenge that because they're fundamentally like they're. The way they work now in the current landscape is they're not they're not about agency. They're not about like um, expanding. It's more about creating this little like microcosm where people who want to work on this code can and people who want to use this code can. But it's not challenging capital. And at this point, like capital is 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 the the kind of force you need in this space because if you want to if you want to um, buy like web hosting, if you need servers, you need capital. And I mean that kind of speaks. That's not necessarily something that was. Um, given, 
if you look at how the internet was developed, maybe it would have been possible if the the government had sponsored um, like an equivalent of AWS. If you had uh, Amazon Web Services as a public service, then maybe things would be different. Maybe you wouldn't need all this capital to be able to create a service like GitHub. But that isn't yes. the case. And so this is kind of like what's created the, you know, the political economic underpinnings that have created the landscape that we see today. And you've actually seen open source projects themselves um, slowly become more democratized. Um, if you look at an essential piece of internet infrastructure like LLVM, the compiler that um, backs a lot of, of other compilers that build programs on the internet, um, it's, mm -hmm. it's you know maintained by an, uh, an open source foundation. It has a board of directors. It has a kind of a semi-democratic structure for um, for making decisions over the long term. Um, whereas there is no you know there's no democratic GitHub or or like kind of um, worker controlled GitHub, of course. Yeah, and, and I mean, just to sort of add on to that, like, look at the acquisition of Red Hat. Like, that was the one truly successful Linux company that was actually putting solid amounts of work into developing desktop Linux. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and... Like, who knows what's going to happen now, right? Like, what's the priorities? Who knows, right? It's, it's like, this is, it, it's just not successful um, as, a, as, like, yeah, because it's entirely beholden now to what the corporate directorship wants to do with the company, and all of that open source work is now just enclosed. Like, the degree to which it is enclosed is entirely up to the capitalists, they can leave it as much of it as they want open or and close off as much of it as they want. And I hate to be the guy that brings up the blockchain, but this is actually a space that is kind of experimenting with these new ideas, um, you know, in, in the block, uh, blockchain community. Um, the default is open source and the default is kind of communal governance because, um, you know, for, for a blockchain to be successful, the people who run nodes on it or participate on it or, or treat its currency as legitimate for whatever reason um, have to have some kind of communal agreement with each other. Um, so you see like people, you see organizations experimenting with with how to run these open source projects and how to uh, govern the communities around them and govern the blockchains themselves. And they're trying everything from um, you know the very common benevolent dictator for life method on the Ethereum blockchain to having absolutely no governance at all on on other projects like Ethereum Classic and, and more or less Bitcoin. Um, and then other projects where there there's um, experiments with voting on on chain or um, or uh, voting one stake or voting one's mining or something. Um, all these concepts kind of esoteric inside the blockchain space, but it's like they're starting from scratch with no um, no understanding of all the, uh, the the past of like the political theory, basically, right? Um, and and hacking out all out of out of a technological wilderness, kind of. Um, just to quickly go back to what you were saying about uh, these like you know open source foundations that are trying to compete, I think that that speaks more broadly to the problem of. Um, organizations and groups without capital or like, you know, dis deliberately disavowing trying to accumulate capital in a, in a socioeconomic landscape that is fundamentally tilted towards those who have capital. And so, um, you know, no, no matter what its intentions, any, any like open source or like nonprofit uh, that that competes or is in some way um, useful to this larger like corporate entity, they're going to find themselves um, potentially bought out or, you know, or just killed off. And, and that's just like kind of how it is. And that's like the, those are just like the, the structural dynamics at play. And so that's not really something we can fix by creating like a slightly nicer, you know, organization or one slightly better bylaws because, 
you have to like look at these like larger um, structural imperatives. And I think that's something that um, maybe like hackers are traditionally not keen to do, right? Because it's so nice to focus on like your little project to mm -hmm. make, you know, uh, to create this world that you have full control over and make it as perfect as you want. But then of course, like if you do that, if you don't look at the bigger picture, then, you know, you just don't really see what's maybe coming for you. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it has to it has to rise to the level of changing the the structural logic um, that governs the whole thing. Because yeah, as you said, like if you're if you're um, yeah if you're if you're just swimming in this sea, like it's it's still a sea, right? Like you're still at risk of drowning, <laughs> regardless of how successful you are. Um, yeah, it's um, I don't know. I, th I think I'm I'm sort of um, feeling kind of down on the the open source sort of stuff now. Well, I mean, I'm obviously still committed to the like the the, the ideals and the, the the principles are still laudable, but I think we're definitely going through a period of like retrenchment and sort of capital re-territorializing around this stuff and just like finishing off the capture that was started years ago, you know. Um, I think we're going to see more of these like, I mean, Ubuntu is going to get bought or, or Canonical or whatever. Um, and uh, just that that retrenchment will get, get pretty bad. I mean, Google already dominates the entire web. That'll just be finished off, you know, by Mozilla, like Firefox dipping to like 1% market share or whatever in browsers. Um, and I mean, I can only, I can only hope that there's like, we, we still get this, like, I, I hope that we, like people realize, like techies realize that, um, like exactly what we've been talking about here, that like the, the, the realm of the individual consumer choice, like voting with your wallet or whatever, doesn't fucking work. Um, you need to collectivize and, uh, basically like communize Google <laughs> is, is the solution to, uh, if, if Google's a colossal monopoly or Amazon's a colossal monopoly, the... The, uh, the solution is to go in there and, and take their stuff and, and socialize it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Easy. <laughs> yeah, trivial. We can, we can get that done. <laughs> um, yeah, um, I guess, is there anything else you'd like to talk over before we sort of uh, start wrapping up? We could go back to something about tech worker organizing. Um, so there's actually one thing I wanted to talk about. I guess I just would love to hear what you guys think about it. But one of the arguments I've been having with people about tech worker organizing, especially with people on the left who um, are kind of like suspicious of tech and suspicious of like tech people. Uh, and some of them are saying like, you know, why do you even bother? Like these people, these people are never going to um, fight for something that's not in their class interest. Like these people are too close to capital, too close to management. They have stock. They're like, by virtue of their position under the system and also they're just like their ideological predispositions, they're never going to fight for something that like benefits, um, that, you know, at, at their expense, at their own expense. Uh, and like, what is even the point of trying to organize tech workers? It's going to be like, or trying to organize cops or just, you know, generally, generally like futile, which I strongly disagree with, but at the same time, it's like kind of hard to have that discussion. And so one of the things that Jason and I have been talking about is that, um, if you're trying to get tech workers to stand in solidarity with like, like other people who on their campus, like cleaners, security guards, cafeteria workers, um, there is sometimes the risk of it being becoming this like moralizing thing about like charity uh, or guilt, and that's something where you know we both fundamentally like disagree. We don't think it has to be about charity and guilt. It, instead, it is about about solidarity and about instead of um, charity, it's about it's about injustice in a way, right? It's injustice and also like seeing that you are all on the same side. And it's almost a strategic thing because um, it's useful for capital if the working class is divided. And so you kind of have to see it as this like, 
this the wool that they're pulling over your eyes is that you know you're all you're all different you should all be fighting as individuals and once you kind of realize that like this this um myth is only benefiting the people on top then that's when you kind of get to see that it's like it's almost like um hunger games as a as a metaphor mm-hmm. where you know you're made to compete with each other you're you're made to feel like you should be fighting fighting each other but at the same time who has cre- created the the arena on which you're fighting who is making you fight you don't have to there is enough you don't need to be fighting it's just like a spectacle in for the benefit of the people on top um and so i think like there is, it's like a huge challenge trying to get people to, to that point where they see it that way, as opposed to just like finding, you know, as individuals trying to compete with each other. So, yeah. And this touches on something I, I wrote about in my article and also that TWC speaks about a lot is who is a tech worker, right? And I think it's really important to have a very expansive definition of who a tech worker is, right? Yes. Um, to the point of anyone who works for a tech platform is a tech worker, but even uh, people who use technology in other sectors of the economy are also tech workers. Um, and uh, you see this in how these com- how big tech platforms are increasingly structuring their companies. Um, we've all been talking about how most people who work at Google now don't work at Google, right? They have 120,000 contractors to their 90,000 actual employees, and that's that's coming for all of us, right? And and uh, I think that's it would be good for software engineers like me to understand that, like we'll be the last to be kind of um, de-skilled or automated or whatever, but it'll come for us as well. If you look at other industries where this has happened, like, you know, who runs Hollywood? Is it, is it people who make cameras and, like, hold cameras? Like, definitely not, right? And I'm more like those people than the, the you know, money people who, who actually control that industry. Um, so in the long timeline, um, you know, the, the financial forces will control all of our workplaces. Um, so it's better to start getting organized now. Yeah, and I think just just to um, add on the the contractor system, the whole two tier employment system. When you read about what's happening in other industries and also labor history, it's so clear that like what's happening in, in Silicon Valley is just the same as what's happening everywhere. And that yes. while it's nice to think of you know tech companies as being this like refuge from capitalism and like a place where things are different, where people care about actually making the world a better place, it's not. It's subject to the same forces. Um, there's a book, uh, Choke Points, which is about workers resisting in the logistical sector, um, you know, people who are working, who are, like, driving trucks, who are uh, working on the docks and stuff like that. And, like, in every single one of these, like, these industries and in every different country, you have the introduction of this two-tier contractor system. You have, like, you know, some people who are making slightly, slightly better wages, and then you have new people who are coming in and with terrible wages and conditions. And it's just so obvious that it's a force force of control. It's a force of, um, like, efficiency for the for, for capital. Um, and I think once you start to like realize that what's happening in tech is not unique, and um, not only do you see, do you understand that there's like this larger system, you also see how to resist because you can learn from people in, in other industries and who have resisted this in the past. Yeah, I think um, maybe one of the sort of uh, common threads there that is helps to clarify thought is like basically systems thinking that like pointing out that like. Like, I suppose the, the antidote to atomization is um, to consider connections and assemblages and to look at how two different things, two things that seem to be different and separate are actually linked together and look, there's a positive feedback loop between them, this sort of stuff. Um, that you yeah, we're can, supposed to be good at that. We're supposed to be, yeah, but I think that that's, that's an angle I've had some success with, with um, sort of with, uh, with techies, I suppose, that like, um, you know, sort of broadening the horizon out from the, the individual to consider the, the systemic sort of stuff. Um, and yeah, it's it, 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 it. I think that's the thing. Like, it is a skill that, like, thinking in terms of systems is a skill that a lot of techies have because it's kind of hard to do the job if you don't. Um, so that's a, that's potentially a, an angle to go from. Um, 
on the other thing, I think that, that started off at the beginning of that question, though, the like there are people on the left who are skeptical of tech. I think I have a feeling that a lot of that is rooted in a sort of um, nostalgia for a time that was a bit simpler, where the means of production were simpler. And I think you you cannot escape the fact that like technology and communications infrastructure is the means of production at this point, you know. Um, so I don't know, like, I think there's there's definitely a sort of contingent of lefties who are like, um, just sort of nostalgic for the early 20th century, essentially, like, you know, um, people in blue overalls with cartoonishly oversized wrenches slung over their shoulders and hard hats and stuff as being the workers. I was like, no, sorry, it's like, uh, tech people are workers too. I mean, it's the means of production. Um, well, I, I think this, it, it speaks to, you know, a really profound strategic failure uh, and I think that this this attitude that tech workers are irredeemably uh, complicit in capitalism and they they are just collaborationists and like they you know they they have all this stock and therefore their interests are like you know basically petty bourgeois um, all of that kind of thinking um, like I understand where it comes from at some level because there are a lot of people on the left who have spent time organizing against uh, social phenomena that um, tech workers have wrought, right? Um, you know, people trying to protect their communities from being gentrified in, you know, these kind of like sudden unstoppable processes of tech companies coming in, bringing in people from elsewhere and those people living in a, just a completely different standard of living and what that ends up doing to the community and, and sort of the, the communication mismatches that happen between tech workers and other workers in those communities. So, like, I understand, like, there are real histories of conflict here. Um, there have been real material differences. But it seems to me like that that assessment is equally sort of rooted in past... Um, strategic analysis to the RMS, uh, sorry, Richard Stallman um, free software approach, right? Where he was, he was addressing a similar dynamic, but he was trying to do it from the inside and seeing what he could do within that situation, right? Like where there was a lot of class collaborationism, where like there was a petty bourgeois mentality among tech workers because like, the, yeah, they were getting stocks and like what was good for the company was good for them. And it was a path to becoming members of the capitalist class possibly. Um, like that was all so much more open. Um, but like we always have to do a real strategic analysis of existing conditions and not just stick to some strategy or some assessment that was valid 30, 40, 50 years ago, right? Um, these things change. Because if, do, um, if you don't do that analysis, you can end up with what is essentially a miasma theory of class, where if you are touched by the fog of capital, you're corrupted, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, like that is, that, is, that is so wrong. And this idea that like, Oh, um, tech workers are basically cops. Well, you know, RMS kind of gets into this a little bit in in the New Left Review interview, where he does sort of point out that some of the work that tech workers do is police labor, right? There is a certain way in which um, tech workers are expected to use administrative privileges to control information and access 
in a way that is, is kind of similar to police work. But tech workers are not just police. Like, police are hired to do many things, but primarily what they exist to do is protect private property. Um, and that, that, that is like maybe a, a secondary thing that tech workers do. But the tech workers do many other things as well. And I think all of us are to some degree implicated in police work if we have any kind of management responsibilities at all. Like, for example, I am a teacher. I do police work in that sense, right? <laughs> I'm working for this system of meritocratic certification that is basically uh, reproducing the class system. And when I, you know, mark students' work um, and assign grades and uh, thereby control access to privileges, um, I am doing a similar kind of labor that tech workers do. And nobody's saying, oh, teachers are just cops, mm -hmm. right? Oh, <laughs> so let, like, let's, let's have that. another look <laughs> around, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think um, the... The reason that there is value in trying to organize tech workers is because their skills could be used for so much more than what they're being used for now, right? And it's like, even if, yeah, some of them are fulfilling police-like functions, that doesn't mean that's all they're capable of doing. And I'm sure of that for a lot of them, they're not necessarily happy writing writing this sort of code, building the sort of products they are. And they that if given the choice, if they had the chance and the possibility to imagine something different, they would probably choose something that they think is useful for society. Um, and it's just like a matter of changing the structure so that that becomes a possibility. Yeah. I guess, um, like, for me as well, it's like that... Yeah, that if people are per per pursuing this purity line where you know you have to be you have to be completely non-cop to to be in any way left, I just have no confidence whatsoever that that kind of miserabilism ha will go anywhere. Like it just, I I think it's a fucking dead end in terms of organizing. Um, you know, the the beginning of of changing this world is to realize that we are in fact embedded in it and we are we are complicit. Like we are complicit, and that's fine. You know, because it is it is in fact a system in which we are embedded and we are agents within it. I'm pretty optimistic about the state of tech on the left, though. Um, as an indicator of that, uh, you know, when the Google buses, the big white buses that take Google workers from San Francisco down to Mountain View, when they first showed up uh, about a decade ago, there have been protests about over them since then, basically. Um, I was on one of these uh, private buses one time that was, uh, like, stopped by protesters. The tires were slashed, uh, you know, kind of attacked by protesters. Um, that was several years ago. Then um, they've continued, but the the tone of them has changed slightly. Uh, and I think the most visible one the past few months was, um, you know, all these scooters that are proliferated around cities. Uh, these like rental scooters that that startups are littering San Francisco with. Um, some protesters uh, like blockaded a Google bus, um, threw all these, threw a bunch of these. Um, uh, scooters in front of the bus to block it and then set some stuff on fire or something. Um, it looked really cool. They were wearing these like kind of um, hazmat suits. Um, and the the message wasn't so much like, you know, Google workers, you're gentrifying us, you're screwing us. It was more against Google and the leadership. And in fact, there were actually tech workers who were there and present and, and participating in the protest. Um, and that's something I don't think you saw like five to 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. No, it's good. Um, yeah, thanks. Uh, 
Wendy and Jason for coming along with us, and uh, thanks, listeners, for, for listening. If you'd like to find us on the internet, we're uh, on Twitter at GIUnitPod. We're on Facebook as General Intellect Unit. You can find us at GeneralIntellectUnit.net, and we're on all the podcast apps, so, you know, like, rate, subscribe, all that kind of stuff. Or um, if you want to support the show, head to Patreon.com slash GeneralIntellectUnit and kick us a couple of bucks a month to pay for books and hosting and stuff. Um, but before we wrap up, we like to give the last word to the guests. So, um, so Wendy, uh, do you, anything you'd like to plug or any sort of links you'd like to hand out? Uh, sorry, I didn't, didn't prepare for this. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, I don't know. Um, follow me on Twitter, I guess. <laughs> okay, cool. That's Ash Dell System. Yeah, Dell System. Fabulous. Um, and you have a book coming out sometime in the new uh, year, maybe? Is it or is yeah. it later in the year? Either either next year or the year after. Okay, we'll um, it, we'll process. keep up with that. We'll, we'll yeah. keep up with that when it's coming out, and um, we'll let listeners know. And uh, and Jason, yeah, is there anything you'd like to plug? Um, yeah, if you want to learn more about the Tech Workers Coalition, you can go to techworkerscoalition.org. Um, follow us on Twitter at techworkersco. Um, we can try and help you find other people in your workplace to organize with and uh, give, help give you some resources. Super. Yeah, uh, well, I guess that's it. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye.